to the Gateway Research Organization podcast. Research and extension led by farmers for farmers. Come grow with us. Welcome, everyone. I'm Stacey Murray with the Gateway Research Organization. We're a nonprofit agricultural applied research association based here in Westlock, Alberta. I am very excited to say that this is the fourth season of Wednesday Night Networking. And here we are on episode three of the season already. Steve Kenyon of Greener Pastures Ranching is back hosting. So thank you very much for that, Steve, and for getting this all coordinated and organized. This session is being recorded. It will be shared as a podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. You can find it by searching Wednesday Night Networking, Sustainable Agriculture, or the Gateway Research Organization. Be sure to check it out if you'd like to catch up on any of the past episodes. Everyone is welcome to ask questions tonight of either Dallas Mount, our guest, or Steve by entering your questions in the chat. I will keep track of them. We'll take them in order. I'll ask that everyone will mute their mic once we get going until it's your turn to talk. If you have a question and would prefer not to speak or you don't have a mic, please just indicate that with your question in the chat and I'd be happy to read your question. Don't forget to hang out at the end of the session for the after networking networking, which starts at 7.30 when we shut the recording off. Everyone can turn on their mics and video and conversation should be free flowing, kind of like coffee after an in-person workshop. So with that, I think we can get underway. I will turn it over to Steve to introduce our guest himself and tonight's topic. Excellent. Thank you, Stacey. Uh, much appreciated. Tonight, we've got a special guest, Dallas Mount. He's uh, the owner of Ranching for Profit or Ranch Management Consultants, whatever, a couple of different names for there. I'm going to give a little history. I took the Ranching for Profit course back in 2001. And I have said it numerous times over the years, it was a breaking point for my business. It was a turnaround point. Amazing school to take. I would highly recommend if anybody wants to take that school. It just, it was unbelievable what it did for me. It, it taught me about economics, uh, how to do a gross margin analysis, and uh, really turned my business around. I, I can't say enough about Ranch for Profit. It was a, a, a big, big part of my life for a long, long time. And it still is. Tonight, we've got Dallas Mount, and we're going to talk about some of the things that can can go right, maybe some of the things that can go wrong, and you know what to do in those situations. Maybe the two extremes of, of a, a business. Honestly, we can go wherever you guys want. Uh, this is a question and answer period. Um, you've got uh, both of us here for an hour and a half. You tell us where you want to go. We'd uh, gladly gladly help answer some questions or whatever you guys want to do. Uh, I guess a little bit first uh, about myself, Steve Kenyon with Greener Pastures Ranching. We've been... Uh, doing a custom grazing operation in, in Alberta for about 20, 20 plus years and uh, been happy to, to be a part of the regenerative agriculture movement. A big part of that back in the day was me taking that course to get started on it. So very grateful for the Ratchet for Profit team, that's for sure. Dave Pratt actually was the uh, previous owner. That's who I took the course from. And Stan Parsons was the originator who started the course. But I'm going to turn it over to Dallas. Dallas, tell us a little bit about yourself, a little bit about maybe our topic tonight and uh, where you want to head with this tonight. Yeah, you bet. Appreciate that introduction, Steve. And yeah, thanks for the nice comments. So yeah, our, our company, RMC, we've been around about 40 years. This is actually our uh, celebrating 40 years this year. That's pretty neat. As Steve said, I'm the third owner of the company. Stan Parsons was our founder. Dave Pratt ran the company for about 20 years, and I get to stand on the shoulders of those giants and carry on what they started. So it, it's pretty neat. So yeah, I've uh, uh, you know had a background in ranching and, and those kind of things. Uh, I bought this company from Dave about five years ago. I think we're entering our fifth year of running it. Uh, and then we also, my family, 
Wheatland, I have a grazing operation here near Wheatland, Wyoming. Wheatland's in the southeast corner of Wyoming. We're about three hours straight north out of Denver. And, uh, you know, the center of the world, everything that happens that's important happens in Wheatland, right? Uh, no. <laughs> yeah, I just uh, like to take it wherever you guys would like to take it. Uh, when Steve asked for some topic areas, I said, you know what? We're just got done doing a round of executive link meetings. Um, some of you might not know what that is. When people graduate out of the ranching for profit school, if they'd like to, I see we've got a few names uh, here on the joining list that are EL members. If they'd like to, they we have an opportunity to to put them on boards of advisors, and uh, we call that board an executive link board. And that board meets three times a year, and uh, these folks look inside each other's businesses and give each other strategic level advice and hold each other accountable to getting action plans done. Uh, so we just finished a round of EL meetings uh, that was really great. Uh, had John Haskell join us. He gave the continuing education at each of those, and and we can dive into some of that stuff that that he shared. I think it's uh, it's uh, really critical stuff uh, that John talked with us. But um, the interesting thing for me was, uh, you know, in, in the EL meetings, people put their financials on the table and and we dive in pretty deep and see where things are. And, and there's a lot of extremes right now. So there's some folks whose businesses are hitting home runs and I mean, numbers like we've never seen. And then there's other ones that maybe they're coming through drought, you know, maybe they de-stocked in drought, uh, an appropriate decision at the time. And now they're trying to buy back in with current livestock markets. And uh, we're, you know, seeing some numbers on the other end of that as well. So I think it's kind of an interesting point, you know, time to talk about, you know, what to do when things go well. And and then also what to do if you're coming through uh, a challenging time or, or coming off a wreck and uh, you know, I think if you're in agriculture very long, we're going to have those, right? And we just need to make sure that that they're survivable and something we can carry on the business through so that they don't bring the business down to a stop. So, so yeah, but I'd, I'd love to take the conversation uh, wherever you guys want to go. I appreciate the names uh, I see popping up in the chat here and where everybody's from. So, Dallas, one of the things that I learned a long time ago, probably originally from uh, Ranch for Profit, is how important it is to do the gross margin analysis. And the thing that opened my eyes or, or woke me up was how easy decisions were once you knew the numbers. Boom, it jumps off the page at you and said, well, what am I doing this for? Any comments? Dive into that a little bit for me. Yeah, well, I, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, I think we need to take it beyond just the gross margins, too, and, and look at the whole ranch economics. So when folks go through the school, we kind of give them a language of, you know, we look at gross product, which is the value of what we produce. We talk about the direct costs, costs that are correlated. You know, every time we add an acre of ground or add an animal to that enterprise, those costs increase uh, proportionally. And then we take our gross product, the value of what we this minus the direct cost, and that gives us the gross margin. So that gross margin is the money left over to service overheads. Now, the really cool thing about that gross margin is we take a gross margin of, let's say we take gross margin on our cows, we take a gross margin on our sheep, take a gross margin on our stockers, and then we use some kind of a unit to, to compare those gross margins across. So if we're talking about those type of enterprises, that unit would be the standard animal unit. So then we take gross margin per standard animal unit. The power of that number, that tells you the economic efficiency of that enterprise. And to me, it's just kind of mind-blowing that we, in agriculture, we don't talk that language, right? You don't have people like at the coffee shop, oh, what's the gross margin per standard animal unit on your, on your cows this year, right? It's just not a conversation that we're used to having. Weaning weights, we talk. What would you get for your calf at the sale barn this year, right? And and the surprising thing, well, maybe not surprising to a lot of you guys, you're on this call, 
weaning weights and price received are not very correlated with profit. They're just bragging rights is all they are. So who cares if your calves weaned at 650 or 450? That doesn't tell you anything about the profitability of that business. But gross margin per standard animal unit tells you a lot about the profitability of that business. So we need to be able to talk about things that actually are correlated with profit. And, and gross margin per standard animal unit is one of those. But then going on down the line in the economics is, okay, well, what are the overheads we need to service, right? And so if somebody's got, well, look at this, I've got $800 gross margin per cows. Well, I've only got 100 cows and I've got $300,000 of overheads to service. So that tells you another story. Okay, well, maybe our overheads are too high or, right, we, we need to figure out a way to scale this business. So gross margins are great, but it's not enough to stop at the gross margins. We've got to got to dig in a bit deeper on that down the line. Yeah. One thing that I've uh, learned over the years too, is that there's a huge difference between economics and finances, right? Our entire industry right now, farming industry runs on finances because that's what the bank does. We're so worried about what the bank needs and what they want and what they do. So give us a little description. What's the difference? Why, why do we need to understand economics and finances? I'm glad you asked. I, I brought my, uh, my pencil along with me here because I thought we might have an opportunity to dive into some of this stuff. So I'm going to just throw a blank slide up here and see if I can get my writing tablet to work. Okay, so I'm going to write the word economics. Okay, so economics, there's, there's three issues involving money. So anytime we're going to talk about money, we're going to talk about these three issues. Uh, Steve mentioned this one here, and it's right at the top of the list, okay? Economics. So there's economics, there's finance, and then the third issue involving money, which we all love to do this, is taxes, okay? So we've got economics, finances, and taxes. And if you look at these things and break them down in their simplest term, economics answers the question, is it profitable? When we're going to come to something with the economic question, we're going to say, is this thing actually generating value? Okay, we're going to look at the value it creates. In our, in our language, that's gross product and the costs that occur. Now, it's important to use that word cost because money can leave your wallet, but value doesn't leave the business. Okay, when you when you buy a cow, if a cow is $3,000 now, $3,000 moves your business, leaves your wallet, but cow comes into your business. So there's really no value transfer there, assuming that cow you bought is worth 3000 So economics follows the value. It doesn't follow the cash. When we do an economic analysis, we're tracking value. You've heard people use terms like opportunity cost. Opportunity cost is an economic term. We're tracking value moved. So economics, is it profitable? It tracks the movement of value in the business. Finance. Now, finance is important, but it comes second. Okay? You see on our list here, economics is first, finance is second, taxes are third. That's the order they, those need to go in. Okay, Finance answers the question, can I afford it? Can I afford it? And how does the cash flow? When we talk about financial stuff, we're following the cash. Can I afford it? And how does the cash flow? Now, the interesting thing is most businesses, when they like go broke, they go broke financially. They run out of money. They don't have enough money to pay their bills. It's like it's oftentimes a cash flow crisis that happens. But oftentimes the reason they went broke is because the business was structured to fail economically. They never figured out, is this thing actually creating more value than costs are occurring? So we really need to be careful about separating these two things. And I'm glad Steve brought this up. The first time I heard this was was Dave Pratt talked about it at Ranching for Profit too. 
And I'm like, I, I've been to all these college classes, right? We talked through all this stuff. Nobody ever explained it that simply. You know, there's economics, finances, and taxes. The important thing about taxes is, is that they're number three here on the list. When you call us up and say, hey, I made $300,000 this year. Taxes are important to manage. When you have enormously profitable businesses, taxes are importantly to, important to manage. Problem in agriculture is most of our agricultural businesses, well, for lack of a better word, suck. They're not economically profitable. But you look at how most of your neighbors are structuring their business, they're often structuring their business with tax avoidance as a priority. When you have a business that sucks, you don't need to structure it with tax avoidance as a priority. Let's make a business that's wildly profitable, then worry about how do we manage the taxes. We've got a guy who who we stole from K-State, who's now on our team here. Uh, Jordan Steele is his name. He's an amazing, brilliant economist. And he did tax. That's what he did for K-State was he did taxes for like 100 farms a year. And he made the statement. He said, I don't, I'm not interested in managing taxes until you have a six-figure tax I think that's pretty smart. If you're having a six-figure tax bill, now we can get a little fancy about how we're managing taxes. But oftentimes you see businesses that are doing things, trying to avoid taxes when they really have no business doing that. Economics, is it profitable? Must come first. Finance, can we afford it? How does the cash flow? That comes second. And then we worry about taxes. Dallas, I just want to stop you there. For anybody on this webinar right now and anybody listening on a podcast, that is one of the most important things you could learn in a farm business right there, that there's a difference between economics and finances. And as Dallas said, I was never taught that in college, right? I uh, graduated with distinction and I never knew that when I got out of college, it was ridiculous. So absolutely a breakthrough if you can figure this stuff out. I remember I had an exchange student from Columbia years ago, showed up at my place and, you know, I learned, taught him how to graze and bale grazing and all the other things. He was there for a few years. And I went down to see him a couple of years ago and he, he stopped me and he told me that the most important thing he ever learned from me the entire time he was here is that there was a difference between economics and finances. Of all the things he could have said that he, you know, he enjoyed learning, that was what, that was the number one. So that means a lot. And I just want to emphasize that, that that is so important in a farm business. I've got one other thing I think it's important to share. We're getting towards the end of the year and people are doing things tax wise, right? And especially year that we're in now where a lot of you guys might have just hit a home run year. And if you have, congratulations, good for you. If you're going to do things management wise from a, from a tax standpoint, uh, John Haskell said this, so I'm repeating what I heard him say, and I think it's brilliant. Make the problem worse next year. You need to do something from a tax standpoint that's going to create more profit for you in the future, not less. So let, let's compare two different things we could do with money. Okay. So let's say we've made $300,000 profit. We want to manage $100,000 of that. Let's pay the tax on the other $200,000 and put the money away. Okay. But let's manage, let's manage $100,000 worth. Well, we could go buy a new Humdinger pickup and pickups are getting pretty close to $100,000 right now. Maybe, maybe our business really needs one. Maybe it doesn't. But in a few years, is that pickup going to make your business more profitable? For most of us, probably not. Probably going to make our life a little bit more comfortable. Maybe it's something we need, but it's not going to make the problem worse in the future. We're taking the, in the States, we can do accelerated depreciation, right? So we could take all the depreciation on 100,000, 
dollars, set it against that that income this year and save thirty thousand dollars in tax. Or we could go buy something and let's let's say we found a set of our neighbors' cows that they're getting ready to sell that are late bred cows and they're getting ready to be sold at a discount. And uh, we've got a system where we're making great margins on those late bred cows. So let's take that same money and go buy those set of cows. And let's assume we're going to continue to make good margins on them. Those cows are going to cause our tax problem to be worse next year because they're going to make our business more profitable. So that's what what John meant. Now, I don't th- buying those cows might be a terrible idea for your business. Okay, don't hear me say go buy your neighbor's late bred cows. I'm not saying that. I'm saying look for things that make the problem worse next year. You made me laugh, Dallas. I got a good story about that. So okay. I had a mentee, someone who I was mentoring back in 2014, 2015. 2015 was the best prices we'd had in a long time. Cattle, you know, a bred cow or cow-calf pair, I can't remember what it was, was like over $3,000 a piece. And he's a young guy coming into this. And I said, you know what? You should just sell your cows, right? Maybe not all of them, but sell most of them. Sell a good chunk of them. Like right now is a great time. Jump into something else. Like he was asking me what else he should do. I said, I don't know. What, what is at the bottom of the cycle right now? Because cows are at the top. Maybe you can go into yearlings. Maybe you could get bred heifers or something. But if you sold cows right now, you would do well. Right? It was just kind of talking about. It. So well, he phoned me back a, few, a couple months later. He says, yeah, I pulled the pin. I sold all my cows. I got $3,300 a piece for them. Right? He's just like, woo, like boom, full of money. And I said, first thing I said to him, whatever you do, don't buy a tractor. Top of my head, right? I just said, don't throw it away. He's, oh, wait a minute. My dad just suggested that we buy another tractor. <laughs> so nothing against his dad. Possibly the son was freeloading a little bit. And dad said, well, you need to put something into this. Maybe he was using dad's track. I don't know the whole story, but that was kind of funny that the first thing I said was don't buy a tractor because you're just going to throw that money away. Invested into improving your land, invested into another profit center, invested into something that will make you money not into overheads that will cost you money because you just sold your cows. Now you have fewer animals to feed. That tractor is going to do less work. Anyway, kind of a funny story that that's the exact opposite advice he got from his father. So yeah, that is, that's pretty good. Yeah. This has been something I've been kind of beating the drum on lately is, is what kind of what to do with the profits, right? And uh, maybe some of you have seen some of the articles I've written recently on this, but um, you know, so making the problem worse next year is one of those things. Another thing that I that I really see as we're looking into this, and a lot of this is coming off of what we saw with the eggs last few weeks, most farms and ranches don't have enough working capital on hand. Okay, And when we say working capital, what I mean is cash that's available to do something with and to get yourself out of a jam. So working capital, the definition of working capital is current assets minus current liabilities. So we like to define current assets is what's cash you could put your hands on in the next 30 days. Okay. If you had to put your hands on all the cash that you get to what in the next 30 days, right? Okay. Well, maybe you got a pile of grain in the bin that could be sold with a couple of phone calls, right? You got a pile of hay out of here. You got some calves that are, you know, you're, you got your background and they could be sold, right? So what's the cash you could put your hands on in 30 days? For most of you, it's probably not your cow herd. For some of you weirdos, maybe your cow herd would be included in that, okay? But for for most of you, it's probably not. I say weirdos affectionately, by the way. So how much cash could you put your hands on? And then what current liabilities, okay, what's the total amount of bills you're going to pay in the next 12 months? Current liability. 
So current assets minus current liabilities. Okay, so when you take those two subtracted, what's left? Okay, that's your working capital. Okay, that's the cash you have available to get yourself out of a jam to do something with. So so what we currently are recommending, and this corresponds pretty well, this comes from John Haskell again, is three to six months on hand of working capital money available to get yourself out of a jam. So so what we're coming back to here as I'm circling around is if you had an amazing profit year, one of the best things I think you could do with that money, if you don't feel like you have enough working capital, is to pay the dang tax on it and put it in the bank. Build yourself a cushion because anybody that's been in this business for more than a few years knows the next something is just coming around. The black swan is now the mallard duck. I mean, there's something that's just around the corner. So having some money to do something with, you know, when droughts happen, people with money have options that people without money don't. When when property goes for sale at a cheap price, people that have access to capital can make moves faster than people that don't. So there's some real value in, in having some some money sitting there that's ready to go to work for you. Save some money for a rainy day, but on a business standpoint. Exactly. You can never have too much cash, never have too much grass, but you can always have too many cows. Who said that one? That's it. (laughs) That's the Bud Williams quote, isn't it? That's the Bud Williams one. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. So the comment was just about opportunity cost and charging your business market value for your invisible inputs. And that if you don't include opportunity cost, you don't get an accurate picture of economic profit. Just if you want to comment on that at all, guys, before I ask the questions. Yeah, Josh is Josh is nailing it there. What One of the ways I like to do the opportunity cost of, let's say your home raised hay fed to your cows. Okay, here, here's an example of it. So you could say, well, it cost me $30 a ton to make a ton of hay. By the way, I don't think it probably cost me $30. It probably cost you a lot more than that. But let's say you you figured that's what it was. It cost me $30 to make a ton of hay, uh, but the open markets, I could sell it for uh, $100. So opportunity cost, your cows should pay $100 for that hay. Yeah, that's the opportunity that you would have to, to if you sold that hay on the open market. If, you, if, if, if in your financials, you charge your cows $30 for that hay, and then you look and you say, wow, look how great my gross margins are on my cows. What you're saying is, look how great my gross margins are on my cows when I subsidize them with cheap hay. That's what you're learning from that. And it's the same thing with opportunity labor. That's something Josh mentioned in there. Um, Opportunity rent on your owned land. right? If you don't charge your cows opportunity rent, then you're saying, look how profitable my cows are when I subsidize them with free use of my ranch. That's what you're learning when you actually include the opportunity cost, like Josh is encouraging you to do, then you learn what actually value are my, are my cows creating rather than just some fictitious thing that you're teasing yourself with. And it's always interesting. People take the opportunity costs out of the enterprises that they're most emotionally attached to. We always like to say, oh, look how great this enterprise is because that's the one I love the most. Right. Yeah. No cowboy, no cowboy is going to put extra opportunity cost on his goats. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so actually, great description. I'm not going to duplicate that, but I will tell a story about it. Just an example of opportunity cost. When I first learned how to do a gross margin analysis, I came home, I looked at my business, I sat down, 
And actually the, the best thing I ever did when I came home from Ranching for Profit was I had to teach a friend what I learned. He came out the next week and he said, I couldn't go tell me what you learned. I spent a whole weekend going through his numbers and man, did that ever reinforce what I learned, right? I had to bring it up and now teach it right away. And that, that was an awesome opportunity for me. When I did my numbers, what I figured out is went through my, all my numbers on my cow herd. I was doing a really good job at feeding cows. I was feeding for something like 60 cents per head per day. I brought in pea straw that year and it was high quality and I was doing a great job. I had 118% calving rate. We had a bunch of twins and like, we just had a phenomenal year. Best year ever. Hay was cheap. I ended up, I went through my numbers, thought they were going to be awesome. I was losing money and I didn't get it. I'm like, what is going on? The reason I was losing money because I had to charge my opportunity cost on my grazing. It was my grazing on my pasture on my land. But the opportunity cost in my environment is I could charge this much for custom animals because I had some. So it was a real number. I I could get rid of my cows and bring in custom and I, I had that value coming in. The reason I was losing money on my cows is because of the opportunity cost on my grazing. And it just, a light bulb turned on me. I'm like, really? Here I thought I was doing everything perfect. But because of the situation, because of the market values, it was causing my cows to lose money. So I switched and I changed and then, you know, we've been making profit ever since because of that situation I'm in. Now that's not in everybody's situation, right? A lot of places it doesn't work that way. But in my situation, that was a, you know, totally eye-opener for me, understanding that opportunity cost. That's a good story. I see there was a comment just two above, and I think Josh was actually answering that question. Is opportunity cost and planned profit the same thing? Or are they two different things? It, the way we teach it at Ranching for Profit is they're two different things. Uh, we ask you to come up with a profit target. What is your profit for? What are the you, you, you want to do with your profit? Add those together. That becomes your profit target. And then the opportunity cost I'm talking about, things like unpaid labor, rent on your ranch, the true cost of all the inputs, those are all built into the cost structure, the the overheads or the direct costs. So they're in the way we teach it, they're different from planned profit. There is another question here about how do you determine the value of key roles in a business and the compensation for the responsibilities that those people take on? Oh boy, good question. How do you determine the value of key roles in the business and the compensation for those people? Is that is that what it was? Our take on this is you need to pay people what they're worth and what it would cost to replace them in the roles that they're serving in your business. Now, that can go either way. And some uh, most ranches, we see people are undercompensated. And so like if your kid is working for you, hey, I'm paying my kid 30000 a year. If I actually had to go out and hire somebody to do this, I'd have to pay them $50,000 a year or $60,000 a year, but they're they're working for sweat equity, right? Is always the, the term it is. And I think that's a terrible idea for probably reasons that might be beyond the scope of the conversation today. But I, I think it's, it's important to look at, okay, what are the roles that this person's filling? If they're a chief irrigator, right? And their whole job is just running the shovel and moving water. Well, we're going to pay them like an irrigator. If they're leading a division in your business, right? If this person's managing the livestock side of my business, and maybe there's a million dollars of assets under management, then I'm going to pay them according to the expectations that I have of somebody producing that role. 
So maybe they're leading a team, right? Maybe they're putting together budgets. Maybe they're doing economic projections in that role. That might be a role that's maybe, you know, a hundred, $150,000 compensation package. Now that doesn't mean that's all cash, right? If they're given a house, a place to live in, if they're given, uh, you know, utilities paid, if they're given a pickup to drive, maybe that all becomes part of that compensation package. But, uh, and you guys are going to have to figure out what these numbers are, right? I'm just pulling numbers out of the air, but I think they might be somewhere in the ballpark. The thing you don't want to do is pay people way more. If uh, that chief irrigator, there's no there's no reason why that person should be at a hundred and fifty thousand dollar compensation package, right? That that we could hire that role for you know fifty thousand dollars all day. But uh, but then the other side is you don't want to treat somebody like a chump either because they're going to start looking for something else, and then there's going to be all sorts of animosity held onto with that. And and if it's your kid, it's even more important to get these things right. Okay, is to make sure you're structured. And a lot of you guys are going to say, well, our business can't afford to pay somebody fairly. And I'm going to say, tough, let's build a business that can. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to attract talent and retain talent. I would add to that. I, I like to put in bonuses. I like to make sure that the the, the person in, in working or employed or understands the business, you know, almost as if they are a, a shared profit. Okay, I'd like to put in bonuses. If you get to this point, you get a bonus. If we have a, a decent profit this year or where our costs are low enough or however you set it up is that they get paid more if they do a good job. Because just paying a straight salary to somebody, you know, they might do really good for a couple of years and then they fall apart. And then they are expecting more because they've been there, but they're you know not doing as good a job as when they started. So I'm a really big fan of having a, you know, a, a base. And then, okay, if you get to this point, you get a bonus or you get these extra bonuses. A couple of the bonuses I've had for uh, summer summer help is a perimeter breach bonus. You get so much per month, every month added to your wage if there's no animals out, right, out of the perimeter. If they're in the wrong paddock, that's fine. But if they're out of the fence on the highway, I'm the guy that gets the phone call in the middle of the night that there's cows on the highway, that's going to cost me money. So if you don't have any cattle out this month, you get a bonus. Every time I think I had it, the first time I had it, it was, uh, you had three, three chances. You knocked a hundred, I think it was 300 bucks bonus. Every time there was an animal out, they lost a hundred bucks. And I remember looking at one guy going, one of the, this was years ago. I looked at him and I said, uh, did you go check that perimeter that, that, uh, quarter? Like we're just about to turn him into this quarter. And he goes, well, no, I checked it in the spring. I said, well, you, you know, you, you, a tree could have fall. He goes, eh, it's only a hundred bucks, right? Right there that, oh, it's only a hundred bucks. Boom. My perimeter breach bonus went up. Now it's 250 bucks every time there's an animal out. So, but it's, it's a free 500 bucks. If you do a good job, if you don't cut corners, if the fences are checked and I'm, you know, I'd gladly pay you to go check that fence, but I want to make sure you checked it. So uh, another one I had was the end of season bonus. You actually, if you're a fencer and you show up on my ranch and you actually make it to the end of the season without quitting, <laughs> you get a free 500 bucks, right? I just want to encourage you, right? Don't give up on me. Just make sure that we, 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 we've got this. So I like to add in bonuses to, and of course, if we're having a decent year, I'll throw bonuses at them all the time. But there's a, there's a certain limit that I, I'm not just going to pay someone because they exist. I want them to understand that if my business does good, then your business will do good. Hank, do you want to unmute yourself and ask your question about money and assets purchasing? Sell an asset, pay the tax so you can buy, or sorry, sell something so you can 
pay tax to buy asset. Is that what you guys were touching on there? That's going back a little bit. Yeah, I think the point I was hoping to make is if you're finishing the year in a, in a good position uh, profit-wise, and you know a lot of people are with the, where the markets are, um, it might be a smart decision to just, instead of buying an asset to protect that money from tax, especially if it's something you really don't need, then just pay the tax profit and put the money in the bank as as cash, as working capital to be able to to insulate your business against against a hardship that might be coming. Now, you know, if you're sitting there and you've got a 365 days worth of operating expenses sitting in the bank, that that's not near as important. But if you're like most farms and ranches I look at, a lot of them are running in 30 days, they might be broke if they didn't have income from something, right? A lot of them are just sitting there on 30 days worth of cash. So if that's the case, you might be smart to pay the tax and put some money away for a rainy day. So that's what you mean, like keep at least that 30, 60 days cash. Uh, our, actually, our, our number is three to six months. And I and I think that six months is, is much more where I'm comfortable with. So yeah. having six months of business expenses uh, sitting there that you could get your hands on in pretty short order. It doesn't have to be all cash, but it needs to be in something that's easily liquidatable. All right, thanks. I can add to that a little bit. When I was new in this game, the number of times I heard phrases like don't own anything that rusts. I think ranching for profit was uh, you don't need to own anything more than a wheelbarrow. That is that from there? That's a, a quote that's in our book from uh, quoting some rancher. Right. Okay. Making, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I knew it <laughs> somewhere. But don't, don't own any iron. Get rid of everything. Okay. I jumped on that wagon because of a decision. The decision was the economics told me so that I don't own very much equipment. However, what I've learned since those days is that if a piece of equipment makes you money, you should own it. There's this paradigm that we got into in our little world of regenerative or sustainable ag or whatever we want to call it, that we shouldn't own it like our overheads need to be low. But if you can prove in a profit center that that piece of equipment is going to make you money, you should own it. One of the biggest problems in most of ranching anyway, is that the equipment that you own doesn't work enough. It doesn't do enough. So it doesn't cover its overheads or sorry, it doesn't cover its opportunity costs. It doesn't cover its depreciation or things like that. So what I've found though, is that if you can set it up to actually make a profit in that business, right? If I could go in the oil field and buy a track hoe, you know, for a million dollars, whatever they're worth, and it can make me hand over fist money, then I should own it. There's nothing wrong with that. But we get we get in this uh, paradigm of we shouldn't own anything. You know, I don't want to tell people go out and buy a bunch of stuff, but I don't want to tell them that you shouldn't ever buy stuff either. Your example of going out and buying the new pickup, that's probably not going to make you a whole bunch of money. But if you bought a piece of equipment that made sense and economically you made money, you could finance it, by all means, go out and do it. Tank here again. It's just this year, right? Cows are worth a lot of money. Sell some cows pay the debt you're paying the interest on. So sell the cows, pay the tax, pay the debt you're paying the interest on, keep the cash. That's great advice. That's kind of what I was kind of looking for. The problem is you're floating, say, 60 grand in there to pay expenses for six months. Should that not be in an asset so you can defer the tax? That's where I'm at, right? Like, either you're ever paying tax or interest. So there's a, you know, there's a comfort zone there. You got to be established enough to do either or. You can't do both, right? You also so don't want to sell the factory. Right. So right. If, if the cows if, are if factory, you lose some rented land, right, you lose some rented land that you got hay on or whatever, some land you can get hay from or some lower cost input stuff, right? Sell the cows, 
pay the tax, keep the cash, right? Especially this year, it's nuts, right? Like I'm over here in Ontario, right? We're like you were saying, three grand for bread cows. What the? You've never seen that, right? So you can't really buy nothing back. So maybe it's a year I bite the cat, pay the cash, or uh, bite the taxes, pay, keep the cash, right? So yeah, no, thanks, guys. Boy, there, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, I, I want to caution you, Hank, before you go out and sell the cows. <laughs> we, we started this with the conversation of, of gross margins, right? We need to know if those cows are working. And if they're working, are they working really, really well? Or are they just kind of, eh? Because if, if I'm looking at your margins, and if you've run gross margins right, you've already built in the cost of the money, meaning the interest on the money in the cows. So if those cows are working, have a really strong gross margin... Boy, it's it's going to be a hard decision for me to say let's sell a enterprise that's really kicking butt, you know. Now yeah, we could all sit. Yeah, go ahead. No, sorry, they're they're paid for. The problem is that I have to buy feed in to keep them. So I did. I sold the cows because you know you're paying ten cents a pound for hay. I don't have the hay. I can't make the hay. The land's gone. So next year, just looking six months in advance, that expense is gone. The cows cost me X. I can keep X if I sell X. So that's kind of the balance. My my goal in life is not pay tax, right? I'd rather pay interest because you're building an asset with interest to me. At the end of the day, looks like we're paying some tax. So, yeah, okay. So it sounds like it's a little bit different question, but I understand. Um, uh, yeah, first of all, if if you're paying tax this year, let's let's high five and celebrate for a little bit first because that means you had a profitable year, right? So um, I I get really scared when people tell me uh, my motivation is never to pay tax because. At some point, we're just kicking that can down the road and it's going to catch us. So I, I think there's there's a reasonable balance between growing a business and paying some tax and squirreling some money aside while we're going. It Maybe it comes down to the individual's risk tolerance, but uh, but yeah, so I, maybe you're onto something well, there. I, I want to circle right? back. Like you're, you got to, you got to, sorry, I don't want to mean to interrupt Alex, but you got to flow it, right? Like that comfort zone is there. At the end of the day, I can't access the feed without paying too much to like right now the prices are that high for me to keep the cows next year to pay that asset back for importing that hay how much further am i ahead right bit the bullet sold some cows next year we should be able to feed the cows we have prices keep up maybe we look at going into something else i think brian english has a question to uh, continue on this a little bit brian if you want to ask Okay. My question is, uh, well, first of all, we're selling some cows, calling some and buying some bet newer ones, but the price of cows, bred cows is pretty high. And um, looking at the futures, the future market is starting to really go down quickly. Do you ever encourage people using price insurance to, like we kept all our calves, we'll, we'll grass them. Uh, we did well that with that this year. I'm wondering, should we be looking at, I haven't bought price insurance before i noticed that the premiums keep going up and the value keeps going down i mean the the premium did come down a little bit this last two weeks but i mean rightfully so because the prices are coming down or should we i'm also wondering should i even be buying more bread cows and you know how markets can change real quick but should we put much effort or much uh, faith in what we see in the markets right now because I, I see it crash in a bit they're starting to use the recession word a little bit more these last two weeks in the media. There's a bit for you to chew on. Yeah, that's a that's, yeah, yeah. I, I I know I I have perfect market wisdom. I'm getting ready to give you guys all the million dollar answer right now. You ready? 
I'm going um, to wrestle next month okay. for this uh, branch of profit. So. There you if go. If I don't get it tonight, I'll get it next month. You'll get it next month. Yeah. So, uh, great, great questions, Brian. So, first of all, the, you know the the price insurance stuff. You know, when I step out and buy stalkers or I buy short term animals, I generally take a position on the price insurance. To me, I'm not as risk accepting as a lot of people that are playing this game are. When I take $100,000 out of savings and I throw that into a buy, I want to be sure if everything falls apart, I'm going to put my $100,000 back where it came from. I don't, I don't end up with less than I started with. So I, I protect to, you know, to, to essentially minimize my losses on that. Um, I don't protect high enough to generally guarantee profits because then the cost of that protection sometimes gets pretty dang expensive. So, uh, but that's kind of where, where my feeling is on that. The interesting thing is on on this idea of where markets are headed. When I was in Australia, I went to this uh, KLR marketing school, which is uh, similar to the Bud Williams marketing school over here. And the guy who was teaching it, Rod Knight, just a great character. And he said, anytime you feel like you have market wisdom and you know where the markets are headed, he said, I want you to take your hand and put it out in front of your face and then just slap yourself as hard as you can. And I really appreciated that because if you look at if we took the best market forecasters, you guys have can facts, right? We have cattle facts down here, right? You took took these people who all day, all they do is look and stuff stuff and think about where they're going. If they had a fifth, if they had a five percent advantage over luck, they would never have to work a day in their life. Because they could just buy and trade, put some options, right? If they knew where it was headed with any wisdom over just wild guessing, mm-hmm. right? They would never have to work a day. So I don't put much faith in this thing of, well, I think the market's topped out now. I think we're doing this. I I do put a little bit of faith in some of the fundamentals, right? When you look at historic cattle cycles and how things go up and how things come down over over long run 10-year periods, right? I think it's safe to say in the next two or three years, the bubble's going to pop, right? And this thing's going to come out. Is that going to be three months, six months, a year from now, two years from now? I have no idea. Okay. But I bet you in two years' time, you're you're going to be able to buy those $3,000 cows at probably 1500 bucks. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So I, yeah. So you're probably going to be disappointed in my answer. I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't have any well, market wisdom on those. In Manitoba, we're not paying the 3000 like Southern Alberta. We're paying, like I, I bought some uh, two weeks ago, 1600 pound Charlays for $2,000, which I thought was a pretty good deal. I mean, a year or two ago, that was a big money, but we're still a little cheaper out here. I don't. Um, I don't know what Southern Alberta knows that I don't know. They're they're yeah. paying twenty seven to three thousand. So yeah. So I mean, there's there's people just like what you're doing that are in the market today, doing buys that that they feel like they're getting real value at. And I don't. I don't doubt. Them. I think they're. I think they are. Right. I think there's there's good buys out there, even though everybody says, well, the market's too high to buy. Well, you know, cer- certainly some some things are overvalued. But there's other things that are undervalued in that same market. And when you when we look at gross margins and when we run analysis, so like if we were going to sit down and run your cows for 2024, the price I'm going to use for your calves in 2024 is today's price, because that's really all I can plan on as, as I know what stuff is worth today. So yeah. so we sit down and we look at stuff. We just we always use today's value. Um, now, there's a few exceptions to that, right? Like 
coal cows in October are a different market from coal cows in March. And we allow for that. But otherwise than that, you know, we're looking at today's today's prices when we're doing our projections. I got one little quick add to this. We had Don Campbell on here a couple of weeks ago, and that question came up. Is there a 10-year cattle cycle still? You just brought that up. I'd love to hear your opinion on that. Yeah. <laughs> Does it actually work? I don't I don't know, to be honest. I know a lot of people who I really look up to as I think some of the smartest people and have been playing this game for a while. Uh, they're they're planning for this thing to pop in the next 12 to 24 months. That's kind of their strategy is they're saying we're we're starting to move assets out of, you know, these middle-aged cows into something else because when it comes back down, we want to be able to replace them at half what they're worth today. Uh, but I, I don't know about the 10-year thing. Uh, we do have another question from a Chen whose mic is not working. What are your thoughts on sell-by marketing like Wally Olson practices? Yeah, I, I think it's great. I think it's, it's a great way of thinking. The uh, What I hear from a lot of people is, well, that's great for Wally because he's in Venita, Oklahoma, and they have a sale three times a week, and they're selling every class of livestock, right? The way Wally does sell-by marketing is not the way you're going to do sell-by marketing in northern Alberta. There's you just you just don't have the the animals trading at different times of the year and the different ones to choose from, but some of the thought processes and the principles behind sell by marketing are wonderful and even wonderful for you know breeders people that just want cows right because it makes you think about the value of each class of animal that you have, and it really gets in your mind that thinking of. Okay, if I didn't, if if I've got a bred cow and she's worth three thousand dollars on my ranch today, and I didn't sell her, then I just made the decision to buy her for that three thousand dollars, right? And it, it really gets you thinking about those kind of principles. Um, Wally helps, and, and, and so there's several that are teaching this stuff, right? There's Wally, there's Doug Ferguson, there's there's other folks that are doing this. And one of the things they do is they help you break down. If you're in the breeding business, they help you break down that breeding herd into all the different classes of animals that you're handling. And think about okay, if I'm if I'm a cow calf producer who's raising my own heifers, I'm really in about four or five different enterprises. I'm in the heifer development enterprise. I'm in the young cow growing business. I'm in the middle aged cow growing business, and I'm in the cull cow marketing business. Those are really the different things that you're doing, and I guarantee you, you're better at some of those than you are at others. And so that's one of the things that Wally really helps uh, teach and, and get in, get into the mind. And I think there's a lot to be learned from those things. So I, I highly, highly support them. And Chen just asked a follow-up about how it applies in the sheep world. Josh has put in a comment, basically, that it extends beyond livestock, selling overvalued assets, buying undervalued assets. That seems correct, yes? Yep, absolutely. I would agree. Yeah, and, and the sheep, sheep work the same way. A, a lot of the people who are in the sell-buy thinking um, often move between species, right? We, uh, I was talking to somebody, a, a guy in West Virginia, Aaron Helmick, some of you guys might've heard him. Um, he was talking about how, you know, hey, we're intentionally moving money out of cattle right now because he thinks they're overvalued and, and putting that money in sheep because he thinks the sheep are undervalued. So he can he can make those trades as they, as they move. Steve, did you have any thoughts then with the multiple enterprises that Dallas was just talking about, how you work with that on your operation? Yeah, it, it comes down to what is the most profitable profit center on your farm. There's a ceiling, right? If you've got like, let's say you've got five profit centers, one of them is the best. You maximize that profit center to the ceiling, right? Go as, you know, maybe 
maybe land is your limiting factor. Maybe the access to animals or the access to feed is your limiting factor, but your, your best profit center, you want to maximize it to the, to the top of the ceiling. And then you put your money into your second most profitable profit center and maybe your third or now these are, you know, economic and financial decisions. There's always one uh, factor that might have veto power over top of those. And that's human resources, right? You might have an issue where you don't have the labor to do that one anymore. Maybe that's your, your ceiling is you don't have the labor. So there's lots of decisions to be made there, but I always try and focus on the most profitable, have something in the background, right? I mean, I started up pasture pigs years years ago because I, I wanted something else if custom grazing, you know, ever dwindled a little bit, what, what's my next profit center? Where, where do I go from here? You know, maybe uh, I think that the talk already was, if you can sell cows right now for $3,000 a piece, maybe you can sell some of your cows, maybe not all of them, right? See what your gross margin tells you and what your finances tells you and invest in something else. Maybe it's goats, maybe it's sheep, maybe it's in improving your land, maybe it's in something else. But keep that cash flow handy so that you can you know, jump back and forth into something else. A lot of people will tell me, well, you can't sell your entire herd. Well, no, maybe you don't have to. Maybe you can just cull really hard on the good years and clean up that herd, uh, You know, get rid of anything that's uh, not pulling their, their weight. And then you can expand on the year when, you know, cow prices aren't good. Then you keep all your heifers and you you keep expanding and keep some of those good genetics. So, You made a comment about human resources sometimes being a limiting factor, which I think actually leads into Phil's question. If he'd like to unmute himself and ask his question. Hi there. Yeah. So I was just wondering if uh, you guys had any uh, advice for how to handle uh, succession of the farm business, because I've recently uh, bought my father out of his cattle and it's uh, it's 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 been a journey uh, to uh, to get it concrete. Is there any advice you could give me to, like, make sure it's concrete, guaranteed succession? We were thinking of, like, getting a agreement notarized and there's would like to know what you guys think about that. Yeah, Phil, I'm sure you're the only one on the call tonight that has any succession issues going on. So, yeah, <laughs> I appreciate the question, Phil. It's a it's a it's a great topic. I love talking about it. Um, it's something that we spend a lot of time at Ranching for Profit diving into. Um, we've actually started a uh, a four day succession school that's that's separate from the thing and and uh, we we bring farm and ranch families in to a hotel to a to a central location and we essentially lock the door and say you're not leaving until you have your succession plan figured out and people are on the same page and it's amazing how just some uh you know getting people to okay we're just going to focus on this can can get it done so I'm not sure what I can tell you in, in a in a short amount of time here on your specific question. Um, congratulations, by the way, on on the headway that you have made. That's awesome. Uh, that's, that's a big deal. I think it's really important, especially when family is working together, to be able to put on our our hats and sit in the role as um, people in business together. Uh, you know, as not as father and son, uh, not as um, you know family members, but as uh, business partners. And to treat each other in a professional way and doing those things. If you and I were going to to be in a ranching partnership together, I would be very uncomfortable if we didn't have clear signed agreements that we both understood and we were both bought into. So I think the the relationship should be the same with your father. Now, 
Does it need to be notarized? I don't know. I mean, I've got some pretty big business deals with people that we've signed and we've shaken hands on, and I don't feel like they need to be notarized, right? To me, those are agreed upon. Um, I think there needs to be frequent conversations on those things, right? So maybe there's a quarterly established meeting, right, where you guys come and sit down and, and the contract hits the table. And uh, hey, what's working well? What's not working? What do we need to update? And so that those things are living documents and and they're not just, you know, signed once and put on the shelf and forgotten. One of the things that happens is people tend, as, and especially when they're working with family, is they tend to think they should be able to misbehave and be forgiven for it um, in, in ways that would not happen in a typical business. And sure, some of that's probably going to happen, but I think we need to be able to call each other out. And just to say, listen, if I was, if you were my business partner here, you are my business partner here, this is unacceptable behavior and say on there, what do we expect from each other and live and live up to those things? So, you know, I, I guess that's probably just a little snippet to give you here in, in the short time that we have. Uh, Steve, I bet you've got some things to add on this, huh? Well, Phil, I, I would agree. I'm not a mechanic. I, I don't know much about fixing vehicles. When I need to get my vehicle fixed, I, I go down and take it to my mechanic and he does a good job. I trust him. He's He knows what he's doing. He's got years of experience doing that. So when it comes to succession planning, that's not me, right? I don't know that. I would. It, my advice to you is you get someone in to help you and your father figure that out, right? There's lots of succession planning people around. Where are you from? Oxford, Ontario, just out of Dryden. Ironically, my dad pinned you in the corner of a meeting and questioned you a shit ton about bale grazing, saying that it was a waste of hay. But, <laughs> but that's uh, all right. I, so <laughs> basically, I, I mean, if you were local or I, I know a couple of people that uh, are really good at that, but th there's people out there that can help you, right? I would say hire somebody to come in and help you guys figure that out. Get the, the groundwork laid and then you guys can go from there, right? There's nothing... It, don't try and do it yourselves. I mean, if you're not an expert on that, you hire someone that is an expert on it. I would highly recommend it for you to do that. That actually just leads, I'm going to stick a little plug in here. Lara, which is one of our sister applied research associations and grow are, are working together to bring Elaine Fraze in on the 1st of December. She is an expert at this. It's about finding fairness in farm transitions and having those really difficult conversations with families. So um, Dallas, there is another question here about if it's wise for breeding stock owners to have an extra winter or a year's worth of feed on hand in case of drought, or if that's a bit of a cash drain and the opportunity cost is too high to that. Boy, I've seen some businesses that I really respect that follow that model. Um, and then I've seen some that, uh, you know, believe like uh, what they need for that winter maybe another 30 days is kind of their target. And I probably fall in the latter camp a little bit. I think I would like to keep that capital uh, working for me in other ways than being tied up in hay that's stored or, or whatever feed it might be. Uh, and obviously it would come into your part of the country as well. We we work in a pretty broad swath and, you know, in areas like Wyoming and, and uh, probably a lot of Canada too, we'd store a lot of that feed outside and fairly cheaply. In some places you get down in the South where they get a lot more moisture and have a lot more rotting loss. And that's just not an option at all. So it, it that would come into it as well. But uh, I think, I think keeping a year's worth of fed feed on hand to me is a little bit aggressive. I'd, I'd probably say, you know, let's keep this season what we plus maybe another 30 days somewhere in that neighborhood. I'm open to debate on that. I, that's not a hard rule that I'm going to fall on my sword over. Yeah, I'd, I'd add to that. It depends. Depends on your opportunity cost. Depends on the numbers. Every year it could be different. If hay is 
you know, this year, hay is 10 cents a pound. Well, are you going to buy two year supply or are you going to shrink that down a little bit and just get, get by with what you can on the year when hay is cheap, boy, by all means, if you got that working capital, you, you, maybe you should buy two years worth of hay, the old political answer. It depends. It is amazing what a good gross margin can tell you, right? It makes decisions easy. That's, that's the whole key to it. Decisions are hard because you don't have all the information. Once you have the information, decisions get easy. Fair enough. I suspect that the answer to the next question will be somewhat similar in that it'll, it's a, it depends. But Jen is also asking, if you have a ranching business in North Central Alberta, what type of operation would you go with? I'm a lazy rancher, so my answer is probably going to stink. But no, <laughs> yeah, it's so I mean, it totally it depends is the right answer on that. I'm going to go with something that has a strong gross margin. I'm going to go with something that, that lights my fire. It connects with the passions about why I ranch. That gets me inspired when when I wake up in the morning. I want to be involved in this, right? This is what I want to do. You know, for some of you guys, that's sheep. For some of you, it's cattle, right? For some of you, it's grazing, right? So, what is it that lights your fire, and why do you do what you do? I think those are the those are the questions you need to have answered. Now, I want to I want to give you guys a little something to chew on. We look at a lot of financials across a broad swath of ranching country. And uh, most of our customers who come to Ranching for Profit are in the livestock business. Most of them are in the cattle business. And of that, the majority are probably in the cow-calf business, the owned. Um, of all the enterprises that I look at, owned cow-calf are almost always the worst from a profitability standpoint. That doesn't mean there's not profitable cow-calf ranchers out there. There's some people that are killing it, that are kicking it, right, that are doing amazing but there's a lot that are doing it at a loss year after year after year. If we dissected this a little bit, and I, I, I enjoy talking about this. For one thing, it ticks people off, and it's always fun to tick people off and have a conversation, right? But um, but if you look if you look at why this is, right, step back a little bit. Who, do, who wants to be in the cow-calf business? Describe to me that person. Who wants to – when you think, okay, this person just bought a ranch yesterday and wants to be in the cow-calf business, who are they? For most of us, you know, in my world, I'm thinking like uh, Kevin Costner or Kanye West or, or Ted Turner. Those are the people who just got into ranching yesterday, right? And they they all want to be in the cow-calf business because it's cool. Because, you know, you get to talk to your buddies about having cows. You get to have the calves on the place. So step back from this a little bit. I'll make my point. Most people who are in the cow-calf business do not have a profit motive. They're willing to sell their calves every year in the fall. And if their bills get paid or if they don't, it's really not that big a concern. I know you guys are in Canada. Numbers are probably a little bit different up there. In the, in the United States, the average cow-calf herd, I think, is about like 35 cows across all ranches. So so that's the person you're competing with. When you take your calves to the sale barn and you're selling in the commodity market, you're competing with someone that's willing to subsidize those calves at a loss. Now, this year might seem a little bit strange to talk about this, right? Because we're having super high calf prices, but if you average all the years together. So when you choose to be in the owned cow-calf business, you're choosing to compete against people who are playing the game without a profit motive. They're willing to subsidize that for free. 
So you're you're automatically choosing to put yourself in an extremely competitive marketing environment. Now, if you if you find some niche in that and you're better at everybody else at doing something, a piece of that, that's where you're going to win. Okay, but if you're just trying to ranch like everybody else and expecting to be profitable year over year, you're kidding yourself. It's a complete waste of time. So if you want to, there's a book out there called Blue Ocean Strategy. And so you think about all the sharks are feeding and the ocean is red. Okay, so the sharks all in their feeding and these sharks are competing for feed. The cow calf and the weaned calf business is a is a red ocean. There's a lot of people out there that want to play the game. Maybe you could think about how do I have a blue ocean strategy? How do I swim to where there aren't as many other competitors that are out there trying to do what I'm doing? For some people, you know, and again, it has to fit your mission and vision, right? Don't let me tell you, Dallas says don't run cows. That's not what I'm saying. That's not at all what I'm saying. I'm telling you, do what you're passionate about, what you're good at, but figure out a way to make it profitable. Okay, let's figure out a way to make this business work. Because if you want your kids to come back, if you want people to be excited about being involved in it, your kids don't want to subsidize their parents' expensive hobby. That does not motivate kids to come back and be a part of a ranch. They want to come back and be a part of something that's winning. So let's figure out something that wins. So what enterprises would I be in? To me, I'm a lazy rancher and I'd want to be in something that's highly profitable because I'm also a greedy bastard. So I'm greedy and lazy. So I don't know what I'd do, but I'd look at the numbers and see what they'd tell me. So. Yeah, that's a, that's a tough question because it depends on the market values. I'm good at telling stories, Dallas. I'm going to tell a little story again, follow you up. If Nike came out and made a shoe and they decided they were going to put it on the market at half price of what it cost them to make it, everybody's going to buy that shoe. Reebok, just to sell some shoes, they would have to lower their price to meet it so that they would be in, you know, in competition with that. Reebok would lower their price and now they're putting a, a product on the market under cost. Eventually, one of them is going to go broke selling those shoes. And then there's, you know, then if we continually to put a product on the market that's under cost, which we do in the cow calf business all the time, you just explained all these hobby farmers out there putting it on the market under cost, then nobody makes money because th- there's a it's a competition to see who could lose as much money. And we talk about hobby farmers, right? I've seen some very large hobby farmers, thousand head that are hobby farmers because they don't know their numbers. And again, they think they're making a profit. They're looking at it on a financial perspective. They're not including opportunity costs. They're not in, you know, we subsidize our businesses in in many different ways, right? We've got uh, land appreciation. We've got inheritance. We've got off-farm income. Uh, unpaid labor. What am I missing, Dallas? There's one more. I, oh, I was reading government. the comments and I was tuned out. Sorry. Yeah, no, <laughs> government government subsidies. Okay, we've got all these subsidies that we think we're making a profit, but we're not. And we're putting these, you know, these calves on the market below cost. I mean, I've been criticized for years, Dallas, that I don't have any skin in the game because I don't own any cows. Every time I do a gross margin on it in my environment and I look at it, is not enough profit. It's too risky. There's, there's there's just not enough there. Someday, if markets drastically change, and all of a sudden, let's say custom grazing dropped. I got three different profit centers working here. I've got a land profit center that I rent land from landowners. I've got a custom grazing operation. That's my profit center. And we've got people that own cattle. Okay, That's somebody else's. I don't own the cattle. So if all of a sudden... The people that own cattle aren't willing to pay a decent custom grazing rate. Well, then my margin drops out. 
but that means the cow guy is going to pay less, which means his margin might get better. So it, it's all on, on market values. If the day that I can't get my custom grazing range, if the demand totally drops out of it, well, I might look at the cow-calf profit center again because then then it might have a margin. But we've got to do those numbers. You've got to see that. And every time I've looked at the cow-calf one in the you know last 15, 20 years, it hasn't, there hasn't been enough there in my market. Sounds good. Phil, you had another question. Uh, so mine's kind of a little opposite of what you were just talking about, but uh, any advice for your uh, producers who direct market to their customers? Be good at it. Uh, let me, let me explain that a little bit. I see we, you know, we, we had a big kind of swing in this direction over the past few years. And we have more and more people that are coming through our program that have some piece of, of direct sales as a part of their farm and ranch. Um, and I see a lot of them that stink. There's not very many people that are doing direct marketing that I see that are, that are good at it. Most of us are farming and ranching because we're not good people, people. <laughs> and, and when you take somebody who is a production person and, uh, you know, and somebody who's a technical knowledge person and you tell them, okay, go sell your product. It oftentimes disaster happens. If you're going to have a direct marketing business, which I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not knocking on those. I see some of them that are really, really good. If you're going to have a direct marketing business, uh, let's make sure it's at, it's at scale enough to actually be worth the headache that it creates. So you see a lot of people that are like, oh, I sold like, you know, 10 last year. And it took me three months of work to sell those 10. And it just creates a, a distraction. Um, so if, if we're going to do it, let's actually do it. And let, let's be good at it. Um, so that, that my, my flip it comment was kind of in jest, but it, I, I really meant it. So <laughs> it goes back to well, human I, resources. I, I, I kind of want to get that quoted so I can put it on a wall, honestly. <laughs> now you're giving me way too much credit. <laughs> Phil, it comes down to, it goes back to human resources, right? What What's your personality style and what are you good at? If you're, you know, most farmers, uh, it's kind of the kind of a background stat here. Most farmers or producers in the agriculture industry, they are a type S personality in the disc profile, right? They don't like change. They don't like, you know, they're hard workers. They want to get the job done, but they're not the people, you know, people, people. They don't want to go out there. They're not the salesman. So if that's part of your business and you want to expand on that, and that's not your personality, you're not a out there go-getter and a people pleaser, then maybe you need to find someone who is and bring them in. Maybe it's somebody already in your business, right? Maybe it's an offspring. Maybe it's somebody else. Maybe they're in the wrong position. They're out there driving a tractor, but they would like nothing better to do than to go out to talk to people, but they're stuck in a tractor 16 hours a day, right? They're going nuts in that position because it's not their personality. Whereas you put them into a a salesman position, uh, maybe they'll just shine. So again, it comes down to personality. Human resources is the most important part of my ranch, right? Trying to make sure all that human resource stuff works together because it doesn't matter how, you know, how good I am at grazing if I can't find the land or the cattle or the, you know, the people to be able to do that. So it comes back to HR. Very true. I just find it funny because uh, what Steve was just saying about finding a good teammate, my wife has taken over all of the sales and marketing, even though at the time she was 
sort of a vegan. <laughs> and uh, we've been excelling at that. And I got to be the operations guy. And the entire time Steve was talking, she was jumping up and down doing jumping jack. So I just wanted to give her credit for that. So <laughs> very good. Etienne had one more question here for you, Dallas. What other costs have to be taken into account after your gross margins? Yeah. So um, let, let, let me flip to my screen here real quick. Uh, do a quick share screen because I know I went through that pretty quick. All right. So gross margins. So the, the formula when we do gross margins, the, the first thing we start with is gross product. Okay. And gross product is kind of like your gross income when people say, you know, what's my gross revenue, but it's a little bit different. But for this thing, let's just, let's just think of it as your total gross revenue. So there's the value you created. Then we subtract the direct cost. Now the, the test of a direct cost is, does that direct cost change proportionally with the units of production. If it passes that test, it's a direct cost. So uh, let's think about cows. Things that would, if I add one more cow, that cost goes up by one. So the things that fall in that direct cost bucket are things like feed and vet. Okay, those are the two clearest examples of the things that would fit in there. One more cow, one more unit of hay. One more cow, one more unit of salt and mineral. One more cow, one more unit of vaccine. The uh, And then so we take our gross product, we subtract direct costs, and that gives us our gross margin. And this is the thing I was talking about where this tells you the economic efficiency of that production unit. It doesn't stop there. Okay, So we're going to do our gross margin for the different enterprises or what Steve's been calling profit centers, right? We just, we're calling them different things. We're going to do our gross margin for our different enterprises on the ranch. And then we're going to add up all those gross margins. That gross margin will have will be a big number here, I hope, right? Now, that is the contributions to overheads and for profit. So there's a whole nother group of costs here, which are what we call our overhead costs. Okay? The economists call them your, your fixed cost. So our overhead costs, this is for most farms and ranches, this is probably where 60 to 70% of your costs land is in this overhead bucket. The direct cost bucket is actually a fairly small, small bucket. So overhead is going to be, the broad categories of overhead are land and labor. So land costs are going to be um, rents on ground, upkeep on ground, you know, that fence that's going in, your annual pairs for corrals, things like that. Those are all land costs. Your labor costs are going to be both people and things or often equipment people and things. So your labor costs are going to be salaries, housing, utilities on houses. Things are going to be pairs, depreciation on machinery, horses, dogs, right? All the stuff that we use to, to do our work are, are the things. So in most ranches that we work with, I'd say about 30% of the total costs fall into the direct costs and then uh, 70% fall into the overheads. As you get more into a farming intensive business, uh, you, you probably have more direct costs, things like seed, fertilizer, uh, chem, those kind of things. So it, it'd probably go up a bit. So so yeah, th there's the whole overhead cost bucket here. Now, the thing that's important to know about that overheads is you need to know how big is chunk that your business needs to service. That's a really important number to know. Some people call it the nut, right? This is the nut that my business to service. So I'll just give you um, uh, the company I run, Ranch Management Consultants. Our annual overheads are $500,000 per year. That's the nut that we need to service before we have any profit. 
So now I'm going to scale my business and have enterprises that have gross margins enough to service that nut. So you guys need to know what that number is for you. You know, for me, it's 500,000. For you guys, it might be something else. Let me just give you one more piece that I think is really cool on that overhead number here. How many work days are in a year? None, if you enjoy yep. your job. Oh, okay. <laughs> there we go. So 365, I thought that might show up. Okay. So the range is zero to 365. Let's be the total oddball farmer who works five days a week and takes four weeks off a year. How many work days are in that year? So five times 47, 235. Here's what I think you need to do for your business is you need to take that overhead nut that you need to come up with. For most farms and ranches we work with, that number, if you've got uh, two full-time people working in the business, that number's probably in excess of 300 to 400,000 for most of you. So some of you guys that have larger businesses, your number might be larger than mine. Uh, this number might be pretty typical of like a 800 to 900 cow ranch would be running in half a million. If I take that $500,000 total overheads and divide it by my 235. So here, I'm going to do that math for myself. My number is $2,127. What, is, what does that tell me? Somebody put that in the layman's terms. When I, when I show up at my work, if I want ranch management consultants to continue as the CEO of RMC, it's my job to create over $2,000 of gross margin every day I show up to my business. If I'm not leading that value creation, my business will fail. What is that for you guys? The reason this question is important is that puts you in the frame of mind if you're in a leadership role in your in your farmer ranch, when you show up to your farmer ranch, what kind of value do you need to create? I recently had a, we were hiring a summer intern to run our grazing operation and uh, we share them with another ranch. And uh, this other ranch are great people, dear friends. They're not ranching for profit a lot. We, we went and took the summer intern and we're visiting with the leader of that ranch. And the intern said, well, what am I going to be doing this summer? And the guy said, well, he said, um, we haul our cows to Nebraska in the winter and we haul our cows to the mountain in the summer. So he said, I spend most of my time in a truck. So you're going to be here irrigating, cutting hay, raking hay, and just taking care of things here. This guy's business is pretty similar size to my business. He needs to make $500,000 a year in overheads to cover his overheads. When he shows up to his business, where is his mind? What, what is his primary role in his business? Truck driver. He's chief truck driver. You can tell me you're going to be on the phone when you're in that truck, but I'm sorry, my my CEO that's running my million-dollar business is not going to be driving truck and running my business on the side. I want somebody that's showing up to run my business. Anyway, I, I got a little bit on a soapbox there, but I hope that that was value. That's a good soapbox, Dallas. I know we have uh, inflation, but when I took ranching for profit, wasn't the phrase that you need to work on the $100 an hour work, not the $10 an hour work? So what's the inflationary price of that? At a zero. No, we've been talking $20 an hour work and $2,000 an hour work, but it's certainly higher than the $100 an hour. I don't see any more questions in the chat for the moment. So I think we will kind of wrap up this part of the evening. Conversation has been great. Thank you, everybody, for participating. And thanks for your thoughts, Dallas and Steve.
I hope the conversation continues after, but as is tradition to the wrap up of the formal part of the evening, I'd like to ask Steve and then Dallas, if you have any final thoughts or encouragement for the producers that are listening, particularly later on, on our podcast, when they are done speaking again, thanks everyone for joining us. I will turn off the recording. You're welcome to turn on your mics and keep the conversation going. And we hope to see you again in a couple weeks. Excellent. Thank you, Stacey. Yeah, a really important night. I, I heard years ago that uh, 80% of what people want is all on production practices. But that 20% on economics, on finances, on human resources, that's that's the majority of your business. That's the most important parts of your business. But everybody wants to hear about grazing and making hay and calving cows and driving tractors. But this might not be the most exciting topic to most farmers out there, but I will say it's one of the most important ones and a major breakthrough in my business when I started to understand that uh, how important this was. So can't emphasize that enough. If you're running a business, these are the things you have to deal with. It's as, as Dallas said, you don't want to be the truck driver in your business. That's not the place to be. Really, really appreciate you being here, Dallas. Like I said at the beginning, Ranching for Profit is a huge, huge part of my life, always has been. Really appreciate what you guys have done there, uh, Stan and Dave and yourself. You guys are doing a great thing for the industry, and I uh, just want to applaud you guys on, on, on what you've all done for the business. So appreciate you being here. I will sign off. Any of you guys listening on the podcast, sorry about your luck. You're missing out on after networking, networking, because that's starting right away. Dallas, thank you so much. Closing words for you. What what do you got coming up? Yeah, there you go. Yeah, appreciate that, Steve. Um, yeah, closing words. I think you wrapped it up well. I don't I don't think I need to say anything more on the content that we covered tonight. What I want to encourage people to do is find something uh, that they're going to do to invest in themselves this this coming year. If that's if we can be a part of that, we'd love to be a part of that. If it's not us, find something else, right? And I think it needs to be something significant, something that that takes you away from the farm or ranch for a period of time to focus on yourself, to focus on your business. This is the stuff we've got coming up in the next few months here. We do a big chunk of our schools between now and February. There's availability in Colorado Springs, availability in Cheyenne, Wyoming. Shannon and Melinda Sims are uh, been teaching for us for a while now. They're they're a ranching couple from Wyoming. They'll be teaching the Colorado Spring School. They're they're amazing instructors. Jordan Steele and myself will be doing the Cheyenne School. So there's a few seats left in that. We're excited to be coming to Saskatoon. So we'll be there February 4 to 10. And uh, Kyle Hamilton uh, with his company there is hosting that for us. Dave Pratt and I are going to split that week. So just like we're doing at Okotoks, Dave will be doing the first few days and then I'll be coming in. We'll have some overlap time there, which will be fun. Uh, and we'll be doing that. And then we'll get into our uh, spring and summer schools. But yeah, if Ranching for Profit can can be a part of something for you guys, uh, we'd, we'd love to see you at a school. Uh, if you've been through the school once, your cost to repeat is just essentially our cost of having your butt in the seat. So you just pretty much pay for the meal package. You, you can come back. And uh, so most people find they get more value out of the second time they come to the school than they did the first. So if you need a little nudge to come back, we'd love to see you.